According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Matthew chapter 26. Although we will uh, be reading details from all four Gospels today as we deal with Peter's triple denial. Peter's triple denial. It's episode 28 in the uh, Harmony of the Gospels that we are making use of. We are combining episodes 26, 27, 28, and 29 all into a single outline. We've done that before, combining two episodes. Once we even did it combining three episodes. Uh, This is the first time and probably last that we will ever attempt to combine four episodes into a single outline. But they do come all together here. Uh, beginning with his pretrial hearing before Annas, then uh, his uh, preliminary hearing before Caiaphas, the second hearing before Caiaphas, where he has the receives the condemnation of the entire council. Uh, so the first three of the trials are all right here within this outline. There are six trials total. Uh, the three that we have in this outline, followed by three uh, that are coming up. Uh, One before Pilate, one before Herod, and then the final one is back before Pilate again. So if you're just trying to think your way through the six trials of Jesus, you have Annas, then Caiaphas, then Caiaphas and the whole council, or the Sanhedrin is the third one, and then uh, Pilate, Herod, and Pilate are your six uh, trials of Jesus in that order. All right, Matthew 26, we'll pick up in uh, verse 58. And then verses, uh, with a little bit of a gap, and then verses 69 and following. Verse 58 says, Peter was following him at a distance. Um, I haven't prayed yet, have I? I better pray. A little rusty this morning. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we give you the praise and the glory, the thanksgiving. Father, the, uh, our appreciation for the opportunity we have to come back together this morning. We've had a bit of a break, Father, some time off. Uh, we thank you for this new year. We thank you for the resumption of this Life of Christ series. And Father, we just, as always, come before you asking for your faithfulness to be manifest. We know that it will, but we ask for it, Father, because it's, uh, it's your delight to provide, Father, and it's our delight to ask. So provide, Father. Uh, Lead us into the truth. Set aside distractions. Open the eyes of our understanding. Uh, Help us, Father, to fix our eyes firmly upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And uh, this this episode in particular, I know it it communicates to me, Father, if I ever feel like I'm uh, experiencing an injustice, if I feel like I'm being mistreated or somehow it's not fair, then, uh, Father, I I appreciate the the trials of of Christ and how he uh, handled his injustice and uh, did so, Father, in your will, for your good pleasure, to accomplish my eternal life. And uh, I just pray that these classes would become very special to each one of us. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. Well, if you have been following the outline, then we are in the midst of main point three. Uh, Because in point one, we uh, spotlighted how only the Gospel of John records the preliminary hearing before Annas. And uh, you you can find this in John 18, verses uh, 12 through 14, uh, as well as 19 through 23. John 18, verses 12 through 14, and verses 19 through 23. Only the Gospel of John records that. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't give us a clue about that. And if you stop to consider the fact that this Gospel wasn't written for decades until later, that uh, you have the Synoptic Gospels that were written written very early, and uh, for much of that first century, the three... Uh, synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke is all that the early church had until the apostle john then in much later uh, decades of the first century then composed the gospel of john and then christian readers for the first time learned about the uh, pre-trial hearing this preliminary hearing before annas we had some sub points there but we'll uh, skip by that um, moved on to point two to uh, move on to caiaphas's trial Caiaphas was high priest that year, an expression that shows up a number of times in the gospel record. Uh, You can think of him as the high priest of the month or the the book of the month or (laughs) something of that nature. Uh, It really is a scornful statement. Uh, 
to reflect the fact that they were appointed and removed and reappointed and re-removed and a lot of the political uh, machinations that took place there between uh, the, uh, the high priesthood and the Roman governors and, and the different uh, offices that were bought and sold. I mean, it was really just a, a terrible uh, situation. Recommend, if you want to explore more on that, there is a Grace Notes document called the, uh, the uh, Chronology of the High Priests, and it stipulates quite a bit of the uh, things that are happening there. All right. Doug, we've got some kind of a massive truck that just entered in, if you want to see what that's about. All right. Point three, then, where we left off and what we want to resume. It's been a few weeks between the holidays and, and uh, New Year's and my mother's death and everything else, so it's been... I think December 12th, am I right, was the last time we were together in class? All right, so almost a month now. All right, well then point three, Peter's triple denial. In the process of all this going on with Jesus and, and those that he's answering and being accused by, we have uh, Peter and John both that have tagged along. And John was known to the high priest and to the high priest's servant. He was allowed to come in and enter in without question. Uh, but uh, Peter was not known. Uh, by sight to the high priest or to his household staff. And so it actually took John's uh, uh, intervening with the, the, the door girl, the, the little slave girl there at the door, in order for Peter to get into the courtyard. And because he intervened and because Peter was able to get into the courtyard, uh, a couple things happened. First of all, uh, Peter's able to uh, witness what's going on. And uh, these things are, are written about in the gospel record. But then also... The uh, prophecy that, that Jesus had given just a few short hours ago that Peter was going to deny him three times. And that gets fulfilled. And then this is what we're, we're looking at now. Peter's triple denial. It is recorded in all four Gospels, and there are details to glean from each one. Uh, I don't view them as being contradictory in any way. No scripture is contradictory. We can harmonize them in a perfectly uh, valid and acceptable format. Uh, there are authors, though, and it's, it's heartbreaking. One of my favorites is an author named Cheney. Uh, who wrote The Life of Christ in Stereo and, and some of these other uh, harmonies of the Gospels. And by and large, he did a wonderful job until he got to this episode. And he finds a, a total of five or even six denials that take place here. And the problem with that is that Jesus didn't say, you will deny me six times before the rooster crows. He says, you will deny me uh, three times before the rooster crows. And, uh, and so we have to deal with that. We also have some manuscripts we have to look at this morning because at least according to Mark's account, it is uh, suspected, perhaps, that two different roosters crowed, that there was a first crow and a second crow. And so does that in any way contradict what Jesus said related to, uh, did, Pete, did Jesus actually say, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times? Is that what he said? Or did he say, before a rooster crows? And, and so these are some of the, in some cases, pretty technical studies that you go to to evaluate different manuscripts and, and, uh, and, and reconcile the, uh, the different accounts. So Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 18. Those are the four chapters of the four books, and we will spend time, I think, with all of them here today. So let's just pick up our reading then in Matthew 26. Um, verse 57 is his arrest. And uh, he's arrested there down through verse 56. All the disciples left him and fled. And then verse 57 says, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So you notice that there's no reference here to Annas and the, the uh, pretrial that took place on the way to Caiaphas. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in. Again, we don't have the clue that we learn about in John where he entered in only because the Apostle John went and spoke to the slave girl and, and received his permission to bring him in. Uh, so uh, entered in, sat down with the officers to see the outcome. And so if you recall the, the setting, you go into an outer gate and now you're in an inner courtyard. Off of that inner courtyard could then be any number of additional residences. I suspect both Annas and Caiaphas had their residences off of that same inner courtyard. There's no indication that when he was sent from Annas to Caiaphas that he had to travel anywhere. It was just moving from one side of the courtyard to the other side of the courtyard as the, the different high priests would come out to their, to their porch or to their uh, portico uh, at the entrance of their residence. Uh, so that's verse 58. He is uh, now a spectator. He entered in and sat down with the officers to see 
the outcome. And then we're going to have a little bit of a gap here. We're going to skip down from ver- through uh, verses 59 down to 68 because that all details the trial and the answers and the, and the uh, abuse, things that we've already looked at. You look to verse 69, though. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all. So she was not the only one he was addressing when he responds to her statement. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. So there is denial number one. And we'll, we'll chart him out this way. There are only three. There are not six denials. Okay? And I think as we harmonize these details together, we, we do just fine with it. I don't have any, I don't lose sleep over it, I'll tell you that, <laughs> okay? But denial one was to a paidiske. A paidiske is a slave girl. Uh, paidiske. It's a diminutive, feminine noun, diminutive of paideon or paideos, okay? Technically speaking, it doesn't have to be a slave girl. It could be any girl. Um, but by virtue of how it was used in the New Testament, we, ha- we have only slave usages of this word it's never used of any of a girl that's not a slave is what i'm trying to say uh but technically it's a it's a diminutive it's a it's a it's a pet form all right it'd be like uh you know if, if a if a uh, scotsman you know talks about lassie you know or laddie you know just it's a it's a endearment or a, a, it's a kitty term talking about a small child and it would be rather insulting actually if the person was an adult right you know, like in, in our culture, in our, in our nation's heritage, calling, a, calling a, a black man, calling him boy, you know, as, if a, as a throwback to slavery times or whatnot, just dismissing him as, a, as someone of no importance, you know, saying, you know, come here, boy. And, and how, how derogatory would that be? How insulting is that? We, we understand that. And, uh, but what I'm illustrating is that, that diminutive form, calling somebody boy or calling somebody girl, uh, calling her a paidiske, uh, does indicate her slave status, and that's, uh, that is consistent throughout the New Testament. So the term is paidiske, and it's the same vocabulary in all three of the gospel accounts. It's the same vocabulary. There's no disagreement in terms of the terminology. Uh, as you're looking at Matthew 26, verses 69 and 70, you're looking at Mark 14, verses 66 through 68, or Luke 22, verses 56 through 57. In John, we have the added detail that this was the particular slave girl whose responsibility was keeping the door. Okay? That was her realm of responsibility. And, of course, he had dozens of slaves. Uh, as wealthy as this high priest was, he could have had hundreds of slaves. All right? And he would have had uh, you know, bedchamber uh, maids and chambermaids. He could have had uh, kitchen, uh, what do you call those, sconians? Scullery maids, okay, scullery maids. Would have had, uh, you know, washing pots in the kitchen. Would have had um, floor sweepers. Would have had doorkeepers and, and all the rest. So this is what we're looking at here. Denial number one was to a padiske, slave girl who kept the door. And yet, as we already highlighted, she was not the only one he, arre- he ad- addressed because in his response, we're told that it was before them all. Before them all. So it's not simply uh, a little girl here that he's afraid of. And she may not have been a little girl. She could have been an adult woman. Um, We don't know her biological age. Regardless, um, he's not just speaking to her. She's the one that mouthed the words, but he's got an audience that's bigger than her. And uh, and that's what he's afraid of here. Uh, So this one is not the complicated one. The next one, though, denial number two has an assortment of recipients. Just like Denial 1 had an assortment of recipients. I'm relaxed about that, but some people get really hot and bothered about it. So here's your assortment in, the, in point B. Denial number 2 was to that same slave girl, according to Mark 14:69, as well as to an another slave girl, according to Matthew 26, 71. Now, some people look at that and they, they immediately react, say, oh, oh, the Bible's wrong. Oh, oh, the Bible's contradicting. Was denial two to the same slave girl or was it to a different slave girl? Okay. It was to both. How about that? Because there's a large crowd here anyway. There's a multitude of, of recipients that are, being, that are hearing what it is that Peter has to say. So denial number two was to that same slave girl, Mark 14, 69. Another slave girl. Matthew 26, 71, and a male slave, 
Luke 22:58. All among those bystanders in the gateway. Those bystanders in the gateway, according to John 18:25. And so to really understand the, the, the full picture of denial number two, as well as denial number three coming up, you have to compile all four of the gospel accounts. And you never plunge into an either-or trap that says, well, Mark is wrong, Matthew, Matthew's right. Or Mark and Matthew are both wrong, Luke is right. It wasn't a slave girl, it was a, it was a slave man. Okay? Why can't we go there? Because it's impossible for God to lie. <laughs> All right? If, if you're going to tell me that Matthew and Mark are wrong, that God's lying in those Gospels, what are you telling me here? So this is the, uh, the activity we've been doing now since 2004 in our Life of Christ series as we are harmonizing the, uh, the four Gospel accounts. They do diverge. Of course they diverge. You would expect them to diverge. I, I laugh every time I get some skeptic that tells me that they think it's problematic that, that uh, the, the, the different gospel accounts should be identical to one another. And then I laugh because I said, you know, if they were identical to one another, word for word, you would just say, well, they copied each other. <laughs> you wouldn't, that wouldn't make you happy either. You'd be critical of that. All right, Mark 14, 69. Um, Again, here, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And uh, seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. And then the servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he denied it. So... Actually, according to Mark's record here, her second statement wasn't even directed towards him as much as it was directed towards these bystanders. Okay, And I just find those terms to be helpful. Uh, it helps us to envision the, the setting and the multitude of people that are lingering around and observing and so forth. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean too. His voice was giving him away. And the... And the fact of the matter because he didn't really want to say a whole lot he was trying to just you know stay quiet and stay to himself and stay low-key but the, the two denials forced him to actually use words he had to speak and we're even told in one of these accounts that he's cursing he's using you know fisherman language okay or army language he's using some vulgar terms and he says i don't know this man and uh <laughs> the more he talks he's giving himself away they know right off the bat, like we, we can tell today if someone comes in here from Kentucky or Alabama or, you know, somewhere with a very distinctive accent, you believe me, these uh, Judeans were highly scornful of the Galileans, the way they lived, the way they spoke, the way everything. And so uh, they're going to identify him by this third denial, by the way he speaks, that his accent's giving him away. So that's Mark's record. Mark tells us it's the same slave girl. In Matthew, uh, it's, uh, the detail comes that she had spoken, and there was another slave girl here. In uh, Matthew 26, 71, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. Uh, verse 71, when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him. So it's a different girl, according to Matthew's account. And said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Doesn't contradict, not if both slave girls are saying the same thing. And again, he denied it with an oath. With an oath. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. Okay? We don't use oaths quite this way anymore. Um, I guess we, we used to, but nowadays we don't. And then Luke. Luke twenty-two fifty-eight. This is where we uh, are introduced to the male slave, Luke twenty-two fifty-eight. So the arrest is in verse fifty-four. Brought him to the house of the high priest, Peter following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. So we got courtyard, we have porch, we have gate. We've got all these different terms that give us glimpses into what the, the actual layout of the, uh, of, the, of the property was like. 
Well, they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, sat down together. Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are uh, one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And the switch there is from woman to man. And even the noun is different because it's the paideske, feminine, servant girl in verse 56. And then another, your pronoun there for another, is a masculine another in, uh, in that. Say, so how do pronouns have gender? Well, <laughs> they do. This is another of a male gender. Saw him and said, but Peter said, man, I am not. Okay, so there's uh, denial number two. Then after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man is also with him, for he is a Galilean too. So the speech gave him away there. But that's denial three. We'll get to that here in a moment. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. We'll get to that here in a moment. In John 18, we have this gateway mentioned. I think we also saw it in Matthew. John 18.25. That's the second denial. The first denial was the uh, slave girl that kept the door. And this is where uh, we find out that uh, he had to appear before Annas first, before Caiaphas was brought in. And uh, verse 15 tells us that Simon Peter couldn't get in without John getting him in. Simon Peter following at a distance, so was another disciple. And that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. You know, think what a privilege that is. Consider if you were known by sight to the Secret Service, and anytime you walked up to the White House, they just said, Oh, yeah, Doug, come on in. Okay, you're just known by sight. And then you stop at the, you stop at the gate and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, by the way, uh, he's with me. Oh, yeah, no problem. No problem. Bring him, on, bring him on in with you. So uh, they both entered in together into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So he, didn't, he got inside, didn't go quite so far inside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper. Anyway, there's that, that's the story there. But then in verse 17, then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now, a month ago when we were teaching this episode, I hope you uh, remember, uh, or maybe you weren't paying attention, but that word also right there, okay? That word also right there I think is, is vital. And I'm not the only one that, that camps on that. A lot of commentaries just get a lot of mileage out of that word also, and I think they should. Because then a slave girl says, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? What's she talking about? She's talking about John, the disciple that's, that's vouching for him and bringing him in. And John has no problem declaring himself to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's known to the high priest, and he's known to the high priest as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So he's making no apologies, and he's making no denials. And so when he goes out to that slave girl and vouches for her and says, Oh, he's with me. He's with us. We're with Jesus. <laughs> Okay, and this is what the slave girl wants to know. Oh, are you also one of Jesus' followers? You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. So that also there is significant because it highlights that John is not denying it. John is very public about his disciple status. But uh, Peter is denying it. So that's denial number one. Denial number two comes down in verse 25. Simon Peter standing by and warming himself. So they said to him, they, plural. Well, who's the they there? Why is that they? Who are they? You know what they say, right? <laughs> you hate it when you're talking to somebody and they're telling you about what they say. Well, who's they? Name names. I want, I want to know. <laughs> yeah, who are they? My dad's hearing a lot of people, things about they, what they say. They're telling them about Social Security. And they're telling them about... What's going to happen now that mom's gone? And they're telling him this. But guess what? They're also telling him that. You've got two groups of they telling them two different things. So uh, one of those groups doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> or maybe both groups. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. So they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. I am not. So there's denial number two. So I don't know about you. I, I don't have any problem with this, uh, with denial number two coming from the same slave girl, a different slave girl, a slave man. I have no problem with three different uh, people being referenced by three different gospel accounts. They're all true. They're all true. They complement. They don't, they don't contradict. And, and I'm fine with that. All right, denial number three. Denial number three featured several ear witnesses. And one highly credible eyewitness. Denial number three featured several ear witnesses. You say, what's an ear witness? Uh, I just made it up. So, <laughs> okay. It's my own word. It's an ear witness. It's somebody that by the way he sounds, they're uh, convicting him based on their hearing. Okay. Not so much based on how he looks, but how he sounds. You've got to be a Galilean. You've got to be a follower of Jesus. Listen to how you're talking. And this is the unanimous testimony of the synoptic accounts. It is the unanimous testimony of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So point C again. Denial number three featured several ear witnesses and one highly credible eyewitness. One that we would call impeachable. I'm sorry, unimpeachable. An eyewitness whose testimony cannot be disputed because of his credibility, his connection, his personal awareness of the subject matter. Again, we can glance through here. Matthew twenty six seventy three, the ear witness account in Matthew. Once again, he denied it with an oath, said, I do not know the man. Verse 73, a little later, you know, Luke told us it was about an hour later. You know, how long did this whole thing take? Because if it was after midnight when he was arrested, and then they transported him here, and then they woke up Annas, and then, then he had his trial, and then woke up Caiaphas, they had his trial, and then they, they, whatever length of time it took to bring in the 70 members of the Sanhedrin to pronounce the guilt, uh, of course, they couldn't get any of that done until morning, all right? Another truck. Man, we're a thoroughfare today. Okay. Um, they had two trials before the sun came up, but they had to wait until the sun came up for trial number three because that was the only way to make it legal. And we've talked about that also, the fact that all their proceedings uh, during the hours of darkness were not legal under rabbinic law. And uh, they're violating their own law in order to, uh, because in their desperation to try to get him uh, murdered before the crowds can, uh, can rescue him. All right. Uh, so there's the Matthew account a little while later in verse 67. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 73. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. The way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear. And uh, these aren't your sanctified oaths that he's taking at this point. <laughs> and uh, he said, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Okay? The Mark account, this is when we start to wonder how many roosters were there. Mark 14. And uh, I don't think there were two roosters, but the, the manuscript, the, 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 the verses are puzzling to sort out. Mark 14, verses 70 through 72. So we have the servant girl, the servant girl again to the bystanders, but he denied it again in verse 70. And then after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you're not one of them for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed, that's where you have a second time in verse 72. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Okay, So there's the ear witness account there in Mark. 
I will discuss the possibility of two roosters under uh, point E. So if you want more on that, we'll, uh, we'll detail that here shortly. Luke 22. Luke 22, 59 and 60. After about an hour had passed, and another man began to insist. Began to insist, saying, certainly this man also is with him, for he is a Galilean too. You know, how many Galileans would be in this courtyard at four in the morning, <laughs> you know, if they weren't with Jesus? You know, I can't just say, oh, I was in the neighborhood, thought I'd stop by and see, you know, these, the, the, the term bystander is a bit comical anyway. All right. For, you, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Here's a, another interesting aspect. They're still within eyesight of each other. Okay? Now, how, how close do you have to be for you to make eye contact? All right? Could you be across a courtyard? Could you be across a football field? Could you be across? You could be, you know, any distance as long as you've got line of sight and the opportunity to lock eyes there. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. <laughs> you know, could you imagine the look in his eyes? That look of betrayal, that look of, that sanctified I told you so, you know? <laughs> Man, prophecy fulfilled. But now this is supposed to be encouraging. Because this prophecy is happening literally, perfectly, completely, precisely as Jesus said it would. So, Ought that not be an encouragement when it comes to the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the eternal victory, the millennial kingdom, everything else Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, all the things to come in the tribulation and the millennium? Of course. That's the principle. That's why you have short-term prophecy to validate long-term prophecy and the different things we've studied related to that. All right. And then uh, the one highly credible eyewitness not necessarily picking on the uh, accent or the Galilean uh, conversation patterns. John 18.26. One of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. Um I suspect this guy knows what he's talking about. He's very precise. We, we know this slave by name. His name is Malchus. We know his relative. We know the, the relationship between these two slaves. So we have a highly credible eyewitness. Being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? <laughs> you know, I know who you are. You're the, you're the swordsman. Not very proficient swordsman, right? The one that you're any better, you know, you know hopefully you're a better fisherman than a, than, a, than a soldier. You know, seems to me if, if uh, he chopped off an ear, he was aiming for something else, a neck or a head or something fatal. All right. Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. The third denial is what triggers it. The third denial. And, and if the words are still in his mouth... And they're still coming out while he's still speaking. That triggers the third denial and the rooster crows. Okay. <laughs> and I find it interesting that they did make eye contact. Point D then. Peter had done his best to stand at a distance, but was still within sight of Jesus the entire time. Peter had done his best to stand at a distance. Wouldn't you agree? Doesn't it seem that way to you also as you read these details? I think so. Peter had done his best to stand at a distance, but was still within sight of Jesus the entire time. He was still within sight of Jesus the entire time. Luke twenty two sixty one tells us that they made eye contact. They looked at each other. With the crowing of the rooster, Jesus turned and looked at him. And Peter saw him looking at him. Peter had done his best to stand at a distance. 
but was still within sight of Jesus the entire time. I may say that five more times. Okay? Write it down. Preach it. That's a sermon right there. That's a metaphor. Okay? Have you had moments in your Christian walk where you've been standing at a distance? Okay? And maybe you're not in flaming rebellion. Maybe you're not in out-and-out carnality and darkness and whatever. But you're not standing close to the Lord. I'll tell you that. Okay? A little aloof, a little distance. Standing back a bit. What uh, Pastor John Eichmann calls the passive positive volition. Where your positive volition has gone from an active positive to a passive positive. The problem with a passive positive is it's a short step after that to a passive negative. And then it's not too much longer after being in a passive negative sense. You actually, you know, passive negative is where you're not really, you're, you're carnal, you're in ne- negative volition. But you're not taking really active steps to hinder other people or do some horrible overt things. It's, it's still negative volition. It's just in a passive uh, resistance type of mode. But then, again, that short step from there to active negative volition. Okay, it's a spectrum. And here's Peter standing at a distance. Here's a, most people's love having grown cold. Okay, when faith is diminished. And, uh, you know, so think about those seasons when, uh, when you're standing at a distance. And guess what? He still sees you. <laughs> that doesn't change. He still sees you. He still sees you. And when it's time for that rooster to crow, the crowing of the rooster is that moment when you hang your head and say, I knew better. I knew better. Okay. The Bible said don't do that. I knew better. And I have my own personal rooster crow moment when I'm convicted and Jesus is still looking at me. He sees what I'm doing. And so we have a... uh, we have a, an amazing concept here that's being portrayed right here in this story. And it's a true story. That's the best part. <laughs> this really did happen. But what does it communicate as a, as a pattern, as a, as a typology in so many, so many respects? All right. Now, if you want to have some um, language work, you can do this under point E. You can really tear into the manuscripts. Mark's Gospel contains several text variants. Mark's gospel contains several text variants, not just verse 68. There's actually verses prior to that. There's other things about a rooster crowed the first time, a rooster crowed a second time. Point E, Mark's gospel contains several text variants, which indicate a second rooster crowing. I'm actually not all that worked up about this either, because even if the variants are appropriate, it doesn't contradict a rooster crowing. If a rooster crows twice, a rooster crows. Um, and so the, the promise is, is met. My only quibble with that, though, is that in the timing of the two different crowings, um, I guess you might dispute or quibble with, with what the promise actually is. All right, Mark fourteen sixty eight is the um, first time here. Where it says, he denied it, saying, I neither know you nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out on the porch. Now, you have a New King James Bible in the room anywhere? Somebody with a New King James Bible? No? Dennis has one? New King James. Do you have something in there that says, and a rooster crowed? Yeah. Okay. So there is, uh, there is at least one modern text. You do too? Yeah. A rooster crowed. New American Standard, this one even puts it in a footnote where it says, later manuscripts add, and a rooster crowed. Okay, so is there a rooster in verse 68? Which would, if there is, kind of make sense, because we have the expression a second time in verse 72. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And because that's in there in some manuscripts, other manuscripts squeeze a rooster into verse 68. <laughs> okay? And sometimes this happens when scribes are trying to be helpful. Uh, you know, they find uh, they find statements like first of all, they don't find a second of all anywhere, and they try to squeeze a second of all in there somewhere. Or they find uh, a, a second of all, 
like in verse 72, so they try to squeeze the first rooster in somewhere. Things of that nature. Now, it is interesting. Um, well, I found a, uh, a commentary, the New American Commentary had a footnote, and they didn't even have the footnote in Mark, they had the footnote in John, interestingly enough, but they were talking about the uh, verse in Mark. And they, uh, they mentioned the fact that this particular watch of the night was called the cock crow. That was the time of this night, the time that this took place. So that Jesus not only promised that a rooster was going to crow, but he spe- specified what time of night it was going to take place. Yeah, let me go ahead and open that up. You want to do an additional rooster study this morning? John 18:25. Let's op- open up the New American Commentary on John. And uh, this is a note that's found in John 18, 25 through 27. The point of all the narratives, however, is virtually the same. Peter failed at this stage of his discipleship. He was merely a fallible human whom the church must not remake into something more than a human. Clearly, sometimes he was a miserable failure as a follower of Jesus. But that fact helps us. I can identify as a miserable failure. All right, That fact helps us as human failures to realize that we do not have to be perfect to become followers of Jesus or to be accepted by God. Okay, Like the billboard on the way out to my house for Gateway Church. There's no perfect people allowed. And that's, uh, I don't know what they spend on that billboard, but they're trying to bring people in. All right. The, uh, Jesus knew Peter's good intentions, but he also recognized his human insecurities and his resistance to full commitment, even after the resurrection. He still has some doubts in John 21 with the do you love me, Peter, uh, message that takes place there. That reality ought to help us find acceptance when we, like Peter, hear the trumpet blow or the cock crow, and we are alerted to our failures. As I said, when, when, when that rooster crows in your life and you hang your head, you know that you knew better. The Word of God told you, don't do that, and you did that. All right. Now, there's a footnote here. You say, who reads the footnotes? I do. <laughs> footnotes are wonderful. The Romans divided the night watch into four segments for guard duty. Okay, This is interesting to me because I've done a lot of guard duty over the years. The Romans divided the night watch into four segments for guard duty. The third was between midnight and the change of duty at 3 a.m., which became known as the cock crow, okay? called electrophonia in Greek or galacinium, galacinium, I guess, in, uh, in Latin, hard seas in Latin. Okay. Um, Anyway, that was the name of this time of of night. It was called the cock crow. This fourth uh, segment was still night, but known as early morning, the proi, and it ran between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., at which point the Romans regarded the time as the dawning of a new day. The change of watches was signaled by the blowing of a Roman trumpet. The idea of the cock crow following Peter's denials fits perfectly with uh, the Johannine theology that evil, lack of understanding, and rejection of Jesus are all linked to Night. There's a lot of night statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, when, when Judas went out to betray him, immediately it was night and things like that. Uh, John 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. There's a lot of night statements in the Gospel of John. Um, concerning night, Boltman in his commentary, let's see, that the Romans had a specific time designated as the cock crow does not mean We're not denying the miracles here. It does not mean that a rooster could not have crowed at this point. But the uh, classic arguments over whether or not there could have been roosters in Jerusalem at that time is rendered moot, considering the prohibition against fowl in Jerusalem that is uh, actually found in the Mishnah. If one realizes that the segments of Roman time uh, can be the fulfillment of the prophetic word. I don't have any problem with a literal rooster crowing. And I don't have any problem with roosters in Jerusalem at this time, even if they were banned under the Mishnah. Because uh, I think the bulk of the population didn't follow the Mishnah anyway. Who cares when it comes to that? All right. Anyway, if you want more, read on that. You can. Jeremiah and his Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. And uh, Linzel and his battle for the Bible. 
There's also, by the way, a um, reference to it in uh, wrong Bible. You don't want to read that. There we go. In uh, Mark, Mark 13:35. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember this, the upper room discourse. Therefore, I'm sorry, the all of it discourse. Be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to I say to you all, be on the alert. And so that verse right there spelled out all four of the Roman watches. Right there in that one verse. Be on the alert. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. That, that shows you all four of the of the watches in the Roman uh, uh, system of, of timekeeping for guard duty. In case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. Don't fall asleep on guard duty. <laughs> okay? Worst thing you could do. You've got a military background, you understand that. Do not fall asleep on guard duty. All right. What, what else can we say about Peter's anti-trial? Who was on trial in this episode anyway? <laughs> Was Jesus on trial or was Peter on trial? Yeah, if you think about it, there were two trials going on. And uh, even more, actually, John was there. He had a trial. You know, every test has a facet that applies to you. Every test. Don't just think of it as somebody else's test. Say, oh, right now, so-and-so is going through a test. Well, that means you are too. Because all things belong to you. You belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And so whatever that test is, find out what your facet is on it and pass your part of the trial. You think of it as an anti-trial, if you'd like. Peter's anti-trial forms a remarkable contrast with Jesus' trial. Okay? And just like the, uh, the point I gave you earlier, um, what was the one I gave you earlier? D, yeah, you can turn D into a CEF class. You can turn that into a Sunday school class or home Bible study. This one here, I think you can do also. In Peter's trial, the witnesses are truthful. And Peter's the liar. Okay? That's why I'm calling this an anti-trial because it's directly backwards. The witnesses are truthful and Peter's the liar. Right? The slave girl was right. She was truthful. The other slave girl was truthful. The, the relative of, the, of Malchus, he was truthful. Every witness was truthful in Peter's trial. And Peter lied all three times. Just the direct opposite of what our Savior was going through. Our Savior was truthful in his trial. And every witness they brought forward couldn't keep their story straight. They kept lying about this and lying about that. And, and uh, they kept bringing in all the, all the liars they could so they could get two liars to agree together. Uh, for their conviction. <laughs> so on, on one end of the courtyard, you've got these liars trying to convict a, a truth teller. On this side of the courtyard, closer to the gate, where the fire was and the soldiers were warming themselves, um, you've got truthful witnesses and a guy that needs to be convicted lying through his teeth. <laughs> and I thought, wow, there's a picture for you. A couple of opposites. And then how about this opposite? Jesus testified, I am. But Peter kept insisting, I am not. <laughs> I am not. You know, what a, what a capstone to the seven great I am messages in the Gospel of John or the, the, the faithful testimony of our Savior. Jesus testified, I am. But Peter insisted, I am not. I don't even know what you're talking about. Who is that guy? <laughs> you know. You know, the follow-up to, I don't know who he is, the follow-up to that is, well, then why are you here? <laughs> you know, what are you doing here? Who are you? Who invited you? Well, the slave girl knows who invited him. All right. Following this uh, trial then, point four, trying to wrap this up, the council concocts a contrived conviction. Guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And, I, and they've already had their man, minds made up anyway. They just needed the sun to come up. Point four, the council concocts a contrived conviction. 
the council concocts a contrived conviction. Their minds were made up. And this is unanimous. Matthew 27, 1. See, it's not just Caiaphas and his say-so. It's not just Annas and his say-so. It is the, it is the, the, the will of the, of the council, of the Sanhedrin. The ruling body that, that was permitted to administer the Jewish religious affairs. Matthew 27, 1, Mark 15, 1, Luke 22, 66 through 71, John 5, uh, I'm sorry, John 7, 51. And in most of those cases, it's kind of, that's where the, uh, the, the chapterfication people decided to start a new chapter. Um, what was his name? Desiderius. Who was the, there was a monk, Roman monk in the Middle Ages that gave us our chapters and verses. Um, it doesn't matter. I used to know his name. Matthew 27, 1. It starts the new chapter. It rolls over into chapter 27 here. When morning came. That's all they were waiting for. When morning came. Now we can go ahead and have a, we can have a, a, a real trial. A, a legal trial. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people con- conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. That's the purpose clause for why they convened. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Remember I said before, even though they had a delegated responsibility of all the religious affairs, they were still banned from capital punishment. Rome did not allow them to execute anybody. That if they had a criminal that had to be executed, they had to bring them to Rome. They had to bring them to, not, not the city, but to the, the Roman authorities, to uh, the Roman governor, in this case Pontius Pilate, for uh, the execution order. And so that's the way it's described there. Mark 15:1. Early in the morning... The chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. As soon as the biggest legalists on earth could say, this is legally mourning. <laughs> okay. Um, was that a rooster? All right, that's good enough for me. <laughs> it's morning. Immediately held a consultation. Mark, by the way, is fond of the word immediately. He uses it a lot. And uh, binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. So, you know, it's not like in a normal court proceeding where you have, you know, an opening and evidence and testimony and a trial. Okay. None of that. (laughs) This is sunlight. We open with a pronouncement of guilt. Bailiff, take him away. Let's go to Pilate. Okay. Immediately. In Luke, we do not start a new chapter and we actually have a bit more narrative in Luke 22, we have verses 66 through 71. When it was day, the council of elders and the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. See, this is the statement that he makes, and they don't need any more. They're happy to get this because they couldn't get those liars to keep their story straight. And uh, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's testifying to his resurrection, his ascension, and his session. The Son of David is not going to be seated on the Davidic throne. The Son of God is going to be seated at the right hand of God, the Father. And they said, are you the Son of God then? Notice he said, Son of Man, in verse 69. He said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said, Yes, I am. And when then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. They viewed his own statement as his confession of guilt. Pack him up to Pilate. Chapter 23, the whole body of them got up and brought him to Pilate. There's no sense in any testimony. There's no sense in any hearing. There's no sense in any cross-witnesses. There's no sense in any, any uh, defense attorney. Where is his defense attorney? <laughs> okay. Now, some suspect that the reason why Annas allowed John entrance is so that he would at least have a companion. He would at least have a, a friend to stand by him in his trial, if not a full-trained uh, attorney to represent him. I find that interesting. All right. And then finally, John 7, 51.
And this is not the same episode. I'm backing up a little bit here. I'm backing up to the Feast of Trumpets the, the previous fall. But at, at that point, they had sent some officers to arrest him, and they failed. And the officers said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And the Pharisees are just pulling their hair out. They're livid. They say, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Okay? You remember this episode? This was the Feast of Trumpets, about six months prior to this, the crucifixion. And at that time, of course, they're full of anger and they're full of pride. And they're, you know, you're stupid. You don't know anything. We're the experts. Not one of us has fallen for this, this false teacher, blah, blah, blah. Well, one of them has. They just don't know it yet. One of them has because he snuck in by night and, and, and got that message about being born again. And so Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, said to him, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? He says, you know, we've got procedures here. Our rabbinic procedures demand that we can't just try him in abstentia. We have to have, bring him in and he has to speak on his own behalf. There were procedures to follow. And they answered him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Notice, just immediately go to ad hominem attack. Like, where are you from? You know? And he's a ruler of the Jews. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And that's a lie, too. But they'd convinced themselves it was true. Why does a proverb like that come into existence? All right. A couple of things here, and then we'll dismiss. We're out of time, but... Um, we may touch on a tiny bit more next week before we move on, but we are going to move on to uh, Pilate in the next, uh, the next round of trials. All they need is for the sun to come up so as to consider this trial legitimate. All they need is for the trial to come up so as to um, consider this trial legitimate. And even Nicodemus could not deny that they had given the condemned man his opportunity to speak. You know, as soon as he says that they will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, and they said, so you are the Son of God, and he said, yes, I am, well, then not even Nicodemus could deny that they'd given the condemned man his opportunity to speak. He at least would have to say they followed procedure. The Son is up, he, had his, he said his words. The Son is up, and he said his words. So he, he, Nicodemus doesn't like it, but he cannot dispute that these legalists have been technical and legal about what they've done. I recommend uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum and uh, there is a, um, a study in his Messianic Bible Studies. If you want to uh, pursue those, if you, if you don't have them or can't find them, I think Google can locate them for you on a variety of websites. And if not, they're in the Logos Bible software and if not, if you don't have it, I can email a PDF. Um, but Messianic Bible study number nine in uh, that collection is uh, on the trial of the Messiah. And it includes all six of the trials, the three we've done so far and the three we haven't gotten to yet. And uh, brings in a lot of additional detail on the culture and the tradition and the, and the uh, expectations, different elements there. So it's uh, the trial of the Messiah. It's number nine. Messianic Bible studies, MBS. Messianic Bible studies, number nine. And uh, if I wasn't running out of time, we would open that up right now and take a look at it. An introduction, the conspiracy, the religious trial, the civil trial. Walks you through uh, Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Judas and his death. The trial before Pilate, the trial before Herod, the final trial before Pilate. Walks you through the entire outline like we're doing here in the process of this class. So, Anyway, if you, if you need a copy of that and can't find it anywhere, just send me an email. I can uh, export that to PDF probably. And yeah, that's, that's doable. And, uh, and get you a copy that you can, that you can read from. Okay? Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the resumption of this class. Uh, Father, for the new year and, and all the blessings that you're... Uh, pouring out upon us, Father. We rejoice that, uh, um, <laughs> well, 
The, the, the stupid Mayans were wrong, Father. The world didn't come to an end. And we knew that wasn't going to happen anyway, Father. We know that, that uh, this present heaven and earth are being reserved for fire, being held in reserve for judgment. That you're not slow about your promise, as some count slowness. You are patient towards each one of us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I thank you that this present evil age, this age of the church, is waiting its own conclusion with the uh, voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Father, we pray that that might even be today. And uh, we just thank you for all the ways that you pour forth your goodness day by day, moment by moment, in ways that we expect, in ways we can't even imagine. And yet, Father, we, we see back with hindsight and amazement at how, uh, how faithful you've been all these years. So we give you the praise, we give you the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.